to the eighth episode of the Real Emergency Vodcast. Today, we are continuing our discussion from December, where we had part one of intracranial emergencies, and today we'll do part two. Real Emergency is produced in partnership with Handtevi, RealDX, and 410 Medical, and it's powered by Prodigy EMS. I am Hillary Gates. I'm the Director of Educational Strategy for Prodigy EMS, and I want you to know that all of these episodes are available to you for CAPSI credit on Prodigy EMS's website. And those of you who are watching live today, at the end of the episode, there will be a QR code you can scan for an hour of free CE. Check us out on your favorite podcast platform or on the Real Emergency YouTube channel. And don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let me introduce our three resident experts as well as our special guest today. First, David Spiro is a pediatric emergency physician and a professor at the University of Arkansas Medical System. He is also the chief medical officer of RealDX. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, an EMS physician, and the founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards. And Mark Peel is a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina. He is a medical director with WakeMed Mobile Critical Care and is also the founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical Innovation. We are honored today to have a special guest to help lend expertise to this discussion. And that guest is Amber Rice. She is an emergency medicine physician at the University of Arizona. And she is a part of the EPIC uh, study team that studies traumatic brain injury in Arizona. Amber is, on, is an EMS medical director and the founder of the Arrest High Performance Pre-Hospital CPR and Advanced Cardiac Training Programs for pre-hospital providers. And I do have to do one shout out to a new member of the Prodigy team, Dr. Maya Dorsett. She is Prodigy's new medical director. We are absolutely thrilled to have Maya on the team. And I can assure you that she will continue to help us bring to you uh, the best high quality educational content that you can get. So some tips for watching today. We do want you to weigh in. The panelists will ask for your feedback. Feel free to use your mic to chime in, keep your camera on or comment in the chat. And this case today is uh, uh, pretty intense. You're gonna be watching the EMS clinicians care for a very sick patient after being struck by a car while riding his bicycle. You should pay close attention to the, their management of his injuries, their really impressive teamwork, and how quickly they stabilize him with a definitive airway and blood products. Spoiler alert, the patient survived this traumatic crash and got to be reunited with his EMS crew, which we're gonna be looking at later in the episode. So let's get started. David, Mark, and Peter, over to you. Well, I just want to say hello to everyone. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be with uh, uh, everyone here on, on the uh, channel today and looking forward to your interactive engagement. And I, for one, always learn something really looking forward to learning a lot today from Peter Mark and our esteemed guests. Awesome, David. Thank you. And before I pass it over to Mark, I, I, this is an exciting episode for me because it's, it's such an important topic and I think it's misunderstood. And you'll see in a little bit, hopefully, that, you know, the amazing work that Amber and the other folks on her team have done, I think, hasn't translated fully. And I, would, I just can't wait to get into the discussion. But um, without further ado, Mark, if you want to introduce the case and, um, and let's get going. Sure. Can everyone see the uh, yeah. first part of the, uh, the screen here? Okay, great. Yeah, so we see it, Mark. 
Just uh, thanks, first of all, to Cypress Creek EMS and Zach Dunlap in particular, the, the training chief there, who and this patient, who all were willing to provide us uh, this uh, paramedic body cam footage of a really dramatic case and a really importantly, a really good outcome. And there's so much to talk about here. We could spend hours on it. I think what we wanted our focus to be is specifically on thinking about the brain and managing blood pressure in particular in the setting of multi-system trauma with TBI or any TBI for that matter. And uh, we'll kind of stop and start this and take input from everyone that wants to give it and and um, can't wait to hear the feedback. So just to quickly set it up, it's a guy in his 30s uh, riding helmeted, interestingly, on a residential street and struck by the car you see here on the right. And um, we'll enter the scene here as the, the first uh, team is responding to the, to the accident. Um, there's no sound in the first couple seconds, and then you'll note sound. And pay, pay close attention to, to the sounds, the, the breath sounds, everything you're hearing. Just kind of pay close attention if you can, and we'll, we'll learn a lot from that. DJ, I need seat collar and headband. Come on. All right, I think I'll stop and just take input. What are people what are people thinking so far about his mental status, his injuries, the general the whole situation? So Mark, I wasn't able to to, to hear the, the it wasn't audible to me his 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 breathing or his respiratory grunting, status. He's grunting basically, Peter. You okay, can see that's him breathing. What I want to know. He's basically not moving. He has a facial grimace one time uh, and he has some and he has some uh, soft grunting. That's about all you get out of him. Right. He, he was he was pink. He wasn't blue, correct? He was pink. Yeah, well, he, he actually will discover here in a minute that he may not be as he's becoming less pink, but he was at the at the at the scene. And Elizabeth Lacey mentioned that he's got the giant contusions, chest and abdomen. So so we're concerned about head, chest, abdomen. So we, and we're dealing with a multi-system trauma here. Um, Christopher says he's unresponsive, but it's perfusing right now. Uh, Britt says very poor presentation in extremis. So these, these are all very good uh, initial uh, impressions. All right. So let's get in the ambulance here and then see what happens next. Yeah, we're working on that. And Mark, can you stop it real quick? Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously, obviously I see that he's got a non-rebreather on. I mean, we just gave it away that the SATs were 76, but um, I think th this is one of the uh, important points here. And I, I wonder, I don't know if Zach can comment on this, but, you know, how early, it seems like very early in this particular case, did they get the um, supplemental oxygen on board here or, yeah. or was it? waiting until we got some vital signs. I'm just curious. No, I, I'll let Zach comment, but the, pretty much the minute he got in the truck, they had a capnography, they had a non-rebreather on him and then put an end tidal 
put a cannula with an end title on it. So double oxygenation. That's, that's the first thing that we did when he got in there is we started the oxygen. You can see he's just now getting put on the monitor. So um, before we even had a set of vital signs, we started that because we knew we were going to uh, intubate him uh, shortly. So we wanted to start that pre-oxygenation process as soon as possible. And, and, and so, Zach, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Ellie. Yeah, Peter, I was just going to ask Zach, tell us about your guidelines for managing TBI and um, clearly entitled uh, CO2 is super important here. What numbers are we looking for? Um, what are you thinking about when you're managing the airway um, in terms of main, maintaining entitled numbers? Well, I mean, this one was unique because of the multi-systems that was involved with it. If this was just isolated head, I, I think it would have been differently. Um, but we definitely wanted uh, to keep his entitled in that 30 to 35 range if we could. Um, but what was interesting about him is his entitled was not accurate because he wasn't he wasn't uh, breathing effectively. That's right. It, it was hard to manage that. So we knew we kind of were just going down the path of, you know, I remember thinking we need to do everything at once. He needs blood. He needs an airway. He needs a surgeon. Um, and so we were trying to, to make sure that we, you know, kept his blood pressure up, which we did a poor job of. He stayed hypotensive. Um, it took time to get, to get the blood products going. Um, and then as you'll see with the, we started the pre-oxygenation to start ventilating him, um, while the, the paramedic at the head is getting ready to, to intubate. Zach, was his initial O2 sat this low? Yes. And what was interesting, I don't know how accurate it was because he wasn't perfusing very well. His blood pressure was so low. I think the initial one we got was 60 systolic. So I wasn't really sure how accurate his, his O2 saturation was. So we just went ahead and, and started the uh, oxygenation process. Do you have a respiratory rate on that, like on that initial presentation? Yeah. So he was breathing about um, 35 times a minute, but as you'll see here a little bit, like Dr. Peel said, he's, he's grunting. And then he starts slightly posturing. So if you look at his arms, at first I thought, kind of thought he was already starting to seize, but he's slowly, slowly posturing and he's grunting. But it was like 35 to 40 times a minute, very, very shallow. And, and then I'm, I'm gonna I'm sorry that I keep bugging in here, but did did the car run him over? Do you know if the, if if the wheels went over his abdomen at all, or do you not know that on the presentation? We didn't know specifically because the the bike was behind the vehicle. What the People, a bystander said it looked like he got hit and then uh, drug, and they thought because he was on the the side of the vehicle that maybe he did get ran over, but they weren't they weren't positive. There, there also you saw there was a a light pole there. There was some thought that maybe he got hit in, in you know between the, the car and the light pole. So we don't exactly know if he was ran over, if he was impacted with the light pole. It was hard to, to get a clear uh, picture of it. And Zach, was he was he was he he was helmeted and was the helmet cracked? What did the helmet? What was the, the helmet? The helmet was off by the time we had got there, and we didn't we hadn't followed up with the fire department um, prior. So I don't I'm not sure on that. And 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 Zach and and others who are on the call, I'm wondering, you you he, here you are you see a gentleman who's breathing 35 times a minute with a sat of 76 percent with chest and head injuries, what are you attributing that 76% to right now, if anything? Is it the chest trauma? Is it the head trauma? Or does it matter? Anybody want to take that? <laughs> I mean, I think the priorities were, I mean, identified very quickly here. I think that the, the potential for a head injury, I think that they recognized that very early and started the supplemental oxygen and put very high flow oxygen on, which is very helpful. I think the only thing you can do beyond that really is provide more ventilation. So obviously the, the trauma could be 
totally um, causing part of this and the head injury and the hypoventilation from the head injury and his low GCS is probably also contributing. So it's very likely both, but I think they did a really great job of really being aggressive early on with oxygenation, recognizing that, um, that deficit really, really early on. And one thing, okay. I, one thing I didn't show here that Zach had already gotten drugs pulled up and like preparation was being made to get a definitive airway as he rolled in the, in the vehicle, Peter. You know, and I, you know, I love, I love what Amber just said. And the reason I brought that up is because, you know, if, if this guy has a flail chest or he's got, you know, a big hemo pneumo, um, is that going to impact your decision-making based on his presentation um, as far as your immediate next steps or not? And that's kind of what I was trying to get out of, out of Zach there to see if, you, you saw those injuries and you, and you immediately were talking about this guy's obtunded, he's got a low GCS, his sats are low, he needs an airway, right? Which is your next step here. And yeah. Peter, we've got a question from Matthew Ball who says, uh, can you speak to the accuracy of pulse oximetry in a hypotensive patient? Mm -hmm. Ah, <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, well, I, I mean, do we, do we have his blood pressure? You, you're saying he's hypotensive. Do we know that yet, Zach? Or do we have a good pleth on this? Is the pleth good? Yeah, so, so we, we were having trouble with the with the pleth. It wasn't a great pleth. And so to your question about why was the SATs low in this situation for me, I didn't, I don't want to say I didn't necessarily care, but it wasn't going to change. He needed high flow. We knew we were going to intubate him. So I didn't know if the SATs were low because of his hypotension. Um, you know, we knew if you look at his left lower quadrant there, he already had some, some bruising and abrasion. So I assumed there was a spleen. Um, because of the mechanism, we assumed he probably had a pelvis. We hadn't got to that yet. And so I, I knew that everything, we, we, the path we were going down was, was going to be resuscitation with blood and airway and trying to make that all fit at once because we didn't have the luxury of, of waiting. If you'll notice, his heart rate's 190. Uh, when I first put him on the monitor and I saw that, I thought he's peri-arrest. He's probably not going to uh, survive until the helicopter gets there. They had about an eight-minute ETA. Um, so we, we were really trying to make sure we did everything at once. Right. With, with, it, with, with airway being your first priority, obviously. Right. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Um, just a quick note in the chat. Um, so we know that there's still work to be done. We have a, um, someone who's uh, commenting that in their agency, you're only allowed to use ET CO2 with a respiratory patient and no other type because it's too expensive. Um, according to the, the uh, deputy chief. So um, we got to fix some stuff, crew. But um, in the meantime, Alexis asks if lung sounds were present bilaterally, Zach? I don't remember at which point we listened to them prior, um, but they were, I remember when I did listen to him, I think it was after he was intubated when I listened to him, he sounded horrible. He, they definitely were present. They were diminished on the left, but I remember thinking he's at least aspirated. Uh, that That's the it was kind of that, that Ronkai aspiration that I remember very, very definitively. One thing I'd point out is in general, ideally you'd get, you would resuscitate this guy first and correct, begin to correct his shock before getting a breathing tube in kind of, as we talked about in some of our previous episodes. And yet I think uh, Zach said it well, you want to kind of do everything at the same time because everything's in bad shape. And, so I think prior, in his case, at least beginning to prioritize the airway immediately, if those sats are real, 
was super important. So, so um, Mark, what you're talking about there is the act of intubation with using a paralytic, right? Well, and so, the application of positive pressure into the chest with once you have an ET tube in can actually you risk further diminishing venous return and hemorrhagic shock and participating in arrest. And, and Zach pointed that out, um, that he's peri-arrest. And I think in our last episode, the, the doc who was in the vehicle even said, you guys, he's going to arrest if we intubate him first and we need to get volume in him first. And so in that other episode, that, that, se- that was sequenced in that way. But I don't think that patient had the respiratory um, compromise that this guy is showing immediately. Uh, combined with the TBI. So it's hard to know what is what what to prioritize first. I think Zach's right that all of it together. Right, but, yeah, but, but even, I'll go ahead. Even Amber, if, you yeah. look at the Epic, if you look at the EPIC study, if you look at the pre and post, so after training, we actually had actually much lower rates of intubation. Interesting. Um, despite a more, so the injury severity in that later group was actually higher, but we actually had lower rates of intubation, um, but better outcomes. And so yep. that really goes to that thought process of, use the tools in your toolbox. It doesn't matter if it's an ET tube, a BVM, uh, you know, an eye gel, some sort of superglottic, anything that you're using, like those are all tools to accomplish the goal. The goal is uh, to ventilate and to oxygenate and to provide what the brain needs. It doesn't really matter if you intubate them or not. So I would argue in this case, I think we could have achieved something very good with even just a bag valve mask rather than worrying so much about trying to get the tube. And I think we always think of that as being very definitive, but really oxygenation is the definitive treatment. It doesn't really matter how it's accomplished. So I, I think that's just something to think about as we, you know, we're talking about intubating and do we have to crash intubate people? We almost never do unless we can't bag them very well. There are um, very good options, like, you know, basic life support options that are very helpful. So Amber, the, the results of your study, and I, I remember making some PowerPoint slides and I'll, I'll share them with everyone at the end, is that you, you had in your study, if your respiratory rate was 10 or greater, your SATs were fine and tidal was fine, and there's no need for an advanced airway, even when the patient has a GCS of less than eight, right? And that, that's a very important point to make here because I think it goes along with what Mark is saying is that let's not be maybe too aggressive with worrying about the airway because it may it may cause other issues such as hypoxia downline and the fact that we're not addressing this guy's hypotension if he has hypotension. Yeah. So Intubation is very things. likely to make that worse too. So if you intubate this guy, you're also going to give him medications that are going to further tank his blood pressure out. So you're kind of giving him a double whammy in a way. So we, we would agree then to basic BLS airway maneuvers, jaw thrust, BVM with an OPA, um, you know, maybe the guy only needs a non-rebreather or whatever, but at least get the oxygenation and ventilation secured um, and then manage, start to manage the other items at the same time. And I will say just to, to preface this, that the paramedic at the head is so good at intubating in like a second that maybe in his hands, I think it was the right choice in this case, but it was smooth and did not obstruct the rest of the of the care. So why don't we, why don't we go on a little bit further here and I'll stop at the next, uh, next opportunity. Yeah. Okay. You got it, Peter? Yeah. Okay, clean it. Clean it good. 
Take some comments here. Actually, one more spot. There you go. What are people thinking? Was that was that drug assisted, Jack? So just rock. He just gave rock. Was that because he had trismus? Yeah. So he he we could not. He was clinched uh, when we pulled the C, C collar, and so we couldn't get an OPA in him, and so we did uh, rock only. Um, I know there's obviously a lot of controversy in paralytic only intubation, uh, but this guy's map was less than 60. So we knew he wasn't perfusing his brain. Um, and with his heart rate being 200, it brought up two things. And one, I can't give him anything else because if I give him ketamine or automate, that's probably going to kill him. And with push dose pressors, I was concerned that even if I gave him 10 mics of epi as a push dose pressor, with his heart rate being 200, that may push him over the edge. So those were a couple of the unique uh, situations we we were in here. How about um, talking through some uh, agencies? Most agencies don't carry blood, which uh, Zach, you guys have had for a while now. Um, Yvonne talks about uh, fluids and then push dose pressors and really working on that shock index. Um, Mark, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sorry, I was distracted for a second. What, what's the question, the, Hillary? Yvonne was talking about, um, you know, for agencies who don't carry blood, when we when we think about um, the shock indexes um, here and, and trying to measure those, maybe just talk through that and push those pressors or fluids or what is it that we're- Yeah, his shock index is about as, as high as it could possibly be, right? So if you take his heart rate over systolic, um, his shock index is like four. And anything over one or 1.2 indicates significant- uh, perfused uh, impaired perfusion so he needs blood and or fluid um interestingly <clears throat> is push dose epi the right thing here I'd, I'd i'd appreciate anyone's input but i'd say with zach probably no he's hypovolemic and bleeding and that's probably not um would not be my first choice although it may be useful down the line after he's gotten some blood into him um so he clearly is in need of resuscitation by any measure so, so um, I just want to pause here and, and just kind of get a sense from, from the audience. I mean, he's got the TBI and we're worried about his airway, but, but clearly he's hypotensive, he's tachycardic. So he is bleeding, he is losing blood. So we have like the big double whammy here. And I think what probably a lot of people are struggling with, and you know, Zach, we, we're, we're all like looking up to you and, and you know, you, you saved this guy's life, you and your team, it's incredible. But, you know, obviously, you know, and, and again, we're not trying to play Monday morning quarterback, but knowing knowing now what we know about this about this patient, you know, what what is more harmful to him at this time? Is it the fact that he's hypotensive in shock because of the blood loss that he's experiencing? Or not or, but he also has this TBI, which could end up affecting him in, with, a, with a long, a bad long term outcome if it doesn't get done correctly. Um, this is hard. I mean, right. This is hard to try to 
manage exactly what steps to go in. And I think that's the biggest learning point from, from this. So, so Zach, so Zach, if you look back at this and, 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 and know what you know now, um, what, what comments would you give the audience if they're going to be in this situation next time around? I, I, because of his, his oxygen saturation we thought was inaccurate, we didn't know what it really was. I still felt like we would have, we would have went down this innovation route because you can tell that he is not, he's not ventilating effectively. So we have to fix that. I've got to get him oxygen. I would have got him blood much sooner. As soon as we would have had the IO in, we would have started the blood right then and see see if that would have bought us a little more time. And then this was like two years ago, so we didn't have the life flow yet. And I remember once we got the life flow, thinking about this case, that could have bought us more time to get him resuscitated, get his heart rate down, um, and then get his blood pressure up before we went directly maybe to the intubation. But even still, knowing knowing everything, he needed all of this done at once. I mean, that that's what I still feel that way. He and and he needed a surgeon as soon as possible. Where he was, he was 45 minutes by ground to the closest uh, level two trauma center. So if he doesn't go by helicopter to a level one trauma center, um, he probably doesn't survive the ground transport either. So there was the logistical challenges as well. All right. So so Amber, I'm I'm going to pick on you then. You have, you have a, an agency out there that doesn't intubate, that doesn't have blood. What do you tell that agency out there in America to prioritize if they don't have what Zach has? Yeah, I think if you look at the EPIC study in Arizona, really essentially none of the agencies that participated um, have blood. So um, definitely blood is not a necessity to um, be able to improve, improve perfusion and, and give a little bit of fluids, right? So definitely blood, I would say, is not a necessity uh, to provide good TBI care. Um, and then intubation, same thing. I mean, I, there are some patients who you're going to have a very difficult time managing their airway, but um, I, I think sometimes we forget about all of our airway adjuncts, like NPAs in the situation when their their jaw is clenched and you can't get, you know, you're not going to get them tubed without paralyzing them. And, you know, thinking of all those other airway adjuncts. And I mean, this is obviously just an incredibly complicated, very, very sick patient. So um, it, it is impossible for this to go perfectly. Um, but I, you know, I think that trying to pay attention to the priorities while it sounds very simple. We, Dan Spade always talks about this, right? It's very simple. The algorithm is very simple. You prevent three things, but it's hard. It's not really that easy to accomplish those things in the pre-hospital setting. So we really have to focus on those things. But, you know, I think all in all, you know, I, I think they, they did a good job here trying to manage that in a very complicated patient. But, you know, it, it doesn't take really fancy tools for, for much of this to get accomplished and at least to make some significant improvements in care by just doing just a couple of simple things, um, even if you don't have the, you know, anything fancy. And then, and then maybe we should ask Dr. Dorsett or Dr. Winkler, you know, you have a patient who has trismus. Do, do, do your systems have anything? I know I, I have ketamine, right? And we, we will utilize ketamine in this particular case. Does anyone out there utilize medications not you know, uh, let's say going through all the way through a paralytic, but other medications to at least help with airway management. So we have um, ketamine, but that would be essentially a med control order, but we do have RSI, but actually we have a system where RSI is an agent is a regional. So we do cross agency deployment. So RSI is not something that is under the credentials of most of the paramedics in our region. The point I wanted to make about what Amber said too is 
And actually, one of the interesting things is 75% of the time RSI is requested to the scene, there isn't actually an RSI. And part of it is that the thing that's stressed is the escalating approach to airway management. Because you can use adjuncts um, to, and part of it is thinking about sort of distance and what the destination is. But every time you escalate, right, and you say, okay, I'm going to put in two NPAs and bag this patient, you're also decreasing the chance that you're going to have peri-intubation hypoxia. Because if you are going to take the patient's airway, you want to do that in the safest way possible. And being able to effectively pre-oxygenate and ventilate the patient prior to that is going to be really key. Um, so I think even if you're the end destination, whether or not that is going to be um, an intubation in the back of an ambulance or in the hospital, taking an escalating approach um, still stands to benefit the patient greatly. I didn't want to, I didn't, I cut this part out, but he, they did administer. So he was on a non-rebreather and a, and a cannula, and then they moved to BVM. Um, I don't think they could get an OPA in because his jaw was tight and then to intubation. So just, just to clarify the path. So he did get, he did get a good uh, segment of BVM there. And one, one question, there's a ton of questions coming up, but one thing I think we're thinking through is why is he hypotensive? And, and in, in a, a multi-system trauma patient, it's worth thinking that through. And there's several people are talking about pelvic binders and needle decompression, and, and that's all important. And, we'll, and we'll, they'll get to that. But just thinking like, what are the possible causes here? He's bleeding inside. He has a high spinal cord injury and spinal shock. He has a tension pneumo. He has tamponade from blunt cardiac injury, or he has all of those. And there's just basically almost no way of knowing uh, at this moment. And so I think Zach and his team kind of almost got to all of those. And ultra, ultimately, he actually gets an ultra, a brief ultrasound uh, when the flight team comes, the Memorial Herman flight team comes in. So they did a good, I think, a good assessment of why is this guy in shock? And let's try to administer therapies um, that address all of those. Um, someone asked, do head injuries cause hypotension? You know, someone herniating maybe and... Certainly a C-spine injury can. I don't know if head injury alone will do it, but he, he had plenty of reasons to, uh, to be hypotensive. Um, and and, and then, uh, someone's asking about the pupils. Sorry, Mark. Yep, uh, Zach, yep. do you have we'll that later. Data? Interestingly, his pupils are small, Zach, as I remember. I, I saw it in one image. Um, we saw one image of his eyes open, and they were small, so he did not appear to be herniating yet. So someone did, did, a, did perform that part of the exam. We want to talk through the needle decompression, Zach. Um, I know you guys also do finger thoracostomy, but um, what, what did you find with the needle decompression or, and what led you to it? The reason on this guy, so once we had intubated him, um, we could, he had breath sounds on the, on the right, um, and they, I could still hear him on the left, but they were diminished. And uh, we checked the two to make sure he wasn't right mainstem. And then, um, so we went ahead and decompressed him. At that point, there wasn't really... Uh, he was getting blood, so if, if it wasn't in our mind uh, too big of a negative to not decompress him on that le left side once we had went and checked the tube, um, and then he's, he's clearly got the trauma to his left side with the abrasion there. If I remember right, he did have I could feel some some broken ribs on the left side as well. Uh, and then once the flight crew gets there, they have their ultrasound. He didn't have any lung slide, um, and so we ended up going ahead and doing the, the thoracostomy as well. I don't remember getting air out uh, and he didn't get much blood out when we did the thoracostomy. When they got to the hospital, um, he did have a, a hemothorax, actually bilateral hemothoraxis. So, so Zach, that, that, was a, that was a finger thoracostomy you did? That's correct, yes. Bilateral? 
No, just on the left side because he still had lung slide on the right. So we held off okay. and just, just went on the left side. And when you did the finger thoracostomy, you did not get um, any blood. But at the hospital, you said that he there, there was some blood coming out. That's correct. Yeah, he ended up getting bilateral chest tubes. Um, and it actually ended up being, was interesting, more significant on the right than on the left. Hmm. Oh, fascinating. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Why don't we uh, keep going and um, we'll address some more of these questions in a minute. Just a quick point, just keep that in mind. That That's his post. In, I think that's the first real blood pressure you got, Zach, um, on the cuff. Maybe you'd said it was 60s before, but 73, systolic, right after intubation. Once we got the blood in here, let it go. Mark, Mark, can you stop it real quick, real quick? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the comment I want to make, I, I want to go back to Zach's comment because I, I heard that he mentioned that during this case, they didn't use, they didn't have life flow back then to, to get the fluids in quickly. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious as, as to that because, you know, here we, we have blood in the field thanks to Broward Sheriff's Office. We have the life flow and we can get the blood in pretty quickly. Zach, in this particular case, um, what did you use to try to get the blood in quickly and did it work? So we just used the pressure infused bag pretty much like everybody has. We got one unit um, in. It was finishing just as they were uh, putting him into the helicopter. And then they did two more units in route as well. Um, so I, like I said, as soon as we got the life flow here, I went, man, this would have been a perfect case. Uh, now I can tell you at our agency, when we have administered blood with the life flow, usually we can get two units in in the time that we would have maybe got, got one or half of a unit in. And, and Amber, Great. this this is a place I wanted to ask you. Let's say you're one of the most of the agencies in the world that doesn't carry blood. In this moment, what do you give him? And is it saline? And how do we think about that controversy of not wanting to give a lot of fluid to trauma patients, but yet wanting to treat the blood pressure? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, certainly. First of all, I want to comment on how wonderful whoever is ventilating this patient is doing. Um, <laughs> probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in that situation in real life. So uh, kudos to whoever's ventilating because that looks um, amazing, very gentle, very careful. Um, but to move on to the, the question, um, if you look at this, the EPIC study, we looked at all trauma patients. So many of these were polytrauma. Many of them were um, just isolated head injury, but many, many polytrauma patients still benefit, mortality outcomes still better um, in patients who did not get hypotensive. So um, most of the time we're giving normal saline, some agencies will carry LR, um, TXA is becoming a little bit more in vogue now as it's getting added to the scope of practice in many places. So those are the things I think tend to get given most often and certainly in the EPIC study um, in our Arizona agencies, that's pretty much all everybody had. So I think that is totally fine. Um, there is going to be some dilution, obviously, whenever you give something that's not blood. Um, but the benefit obviously is outweighing the risks of any sort of dilutional anemia that you'd get or any coagulopathy that would result. So yes, that's an issue. I would say by and large, though, the blood pressure and the brain perfusion is probably much more important um, in most of these patients. 
Amber, would you know many surgeons, many surgeons, even in my area, would automatically say, you know, it's permissive hypotension, and the brain is not even an organ in their mind. How do you overcome that? The sentence you just said is very important, but I don't think many people follow it. Why? Why has that not penetrated into, um, you know, real world? Why do you think that's been an issue? I don't know. I think that a lot of it is the the heavy reliance on some of the early trauma literature and some of the trauma literature that looked at permissive hypotension. So there isn't a ton of data um, in this regard. It's not very many studies. And I, I think when you look at something like a extremity trauma, bleeding extremity trauma, I think, yes, um, you're likely to have, you know, some benefit with allowing their blood pressure to be slightly lower. Um, but if you have someone with polytrauma, certainly someone with a bad head injury, if they're, most of these patients die from brain death. So most of these trauma patients, the vast majority died because they, their brain died, not because the trauma surgeon couldn't get their, their blood pressure back up again. Most die from brain trauma. So protecting the brain in the vast majority of trauma patients is going to lead to a, a really significant benefit because most trauma patients, polytrauma patients will not die from hemorrhage necessarily. If they get to the hospital alive, um, they're going to die from secondary brain trauma. The, I, the think, I think that's a home run. Yeah. The sensitivity to point. fluids, I think Peter comes from, and I'd love to hear other people's input, but when I was training, we had to give surgical doses of fluid to patients in shock, meaning leaders and leaders and leaders and leaders. And there is no question harm done by the effects that that produces, including dilutional coagulopathy, hypothermia, um, and acidosis. No question. However, a small, modest amount targeted at getting this guy's blood pressure into the, a reasonable range, and it's no one knows what that is. Amber just said, I think in their study, basically there was a continual mortality increase as you decrease below around 130. So do you want this guy to be 130 when, he, when we know he ultimately has pelvic, liver, pelvic fractures, liver lack, spleen lack, everything else? Probably not, but he needed more than he had, and we need to be attentive to thinking about um, uh, giving a modest dose of saline. Someone here is asking about LR. I, this is a place where I love LR, but this is a place where I probably wouldn't do it because it's, it's hypotonic and you're giving a sodium content of around 130 to someone who has cerebral edema. So I think a uh, normal saline, if not hypertonic, is probably a better choice if you're going to give fluids here. And then lastly, I'm seeing a lot of questions about TXA. Um, I think, Amber, you mentioned some of your agencies were doing it. A lot of people are. Zach, did you have TXA in this case? We did not have TXA. We do now, but we, we didn't then. And that would certainly be reasonable to give him even if you don't have blood. Yeah. I'm, I'm, there's so many good questions coming in. Someone made this incredible comment that they don't allow, their agency doesn't allow drug-assisted intubation. And with a, with a tight jaw, which to me often happens in someone with a severe TBI, they have a clenched jaw, how could that, man, that airway be well-managed uh, without a drug-assisted approach? It's going to be tough to get a, a superglottic in. It's going to be tough to get an oral airway in. There's probably going to be a lot of blood and secretions. What do people, what do people can, say about that? I can tell you that I used to be one of those agencies who used to have to call in air rescue from another agency. Because, you know, um, one of the cities that I manage is kind of far from the trauma center that's you know there's a lot of highway trauma and we, we had to keep calling air 
to come in and, and there was like a 20 year old guy come off the helicopter and then they, they would have all the meds. So we, we ended up changing our, our strategy, but I will tell you now more often than not, we will use ketamine to relieve the trismus, not intubate. Um, at most, maybe put a supraglottic in, but we will try to avoid as much as we can to Amber's point intubation and just to get this oxygenation up without having to take the airway if we can. If we can't, we'll throw in an eye gel. If that doesn't work, then we'll escalate like Maya said and we'll, we'll do the final escalation. But we try to avoid that at all costs, to be quite honest. And Peter, there's a lot of questions on ketamine in particular coming in on why not use it in this case? What are the risks? I think there are certainly reports of hemodynamic collapse, even with ketamine administration, think, even though we think of it as a stable, stable drug. So maybe lower dosing. What, what's your approach here? Well, I think Cypress Creek has it right because they're one of the few agencies, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong, that you actually lower the dose based on the low, on the blood pressure, correct? Correct. Yeah, we use shot dose ketamine. And that's one even here, like I talked about with the push dose epi, it was still we talked about shock dose ketamine in this guy, but we were worried because he was so unstable that anything could push him over the edge. Um, so that's, that was something that we, we kept going, do we, do we give him something else or, or do we, you know, do we just go with the paralytic only intubation? Right. I think, I think I'll just have pause to highlight that what you guys do at this system is just in incredible. I mean, it's more than any other agency probably out there who's listening um, so just kudos to you guys for that. But the fact that you understand the shock dose ketamine, and I think for people out there who, who think ketamine just always raises blood pressure, it, it turns out it doesn't, especially in the hypotensive patient. Right. So yeah, great point. So two questions. Um, someone's asking about targeting a map, like, okay, what are you, what's systolic or map are you going to shoot for in this guy, Amber, even though we don't know the answer? What's a reasonable amount if you're going to give some fluid or blood? Like, what should we what should we look for in him, knowing he has internal hemorrhage, most likely? Yeah, I mean, we would love for them not to go below ninety, if possible. I mean, that was really sort of the the cutoff in the epic study. But like we said, that mortality benefit continued to even higher blood pressures, you know, across the spectrum of that severe TBI group. But um, but yeah, I would say if you could keep them from going below ninety, I mean, there's not that much difference between ninety and seventy probably in terms of permissive hypotension, but there, there's a big difference to the brain. So I would say if you could at least get them above 90, we try to keep ours always above 110 uh, for our trauma patients with head injury. So we, we push it a little bit higher in terms of the threshold at which we're, we're asking them to start treating hypotension. We say, don't let it drift down to 90 before you start, you know, start giving fluids when their blood pressure is 110 um, and prevent them from drifting further down. Um, Two questions. One that yeah. came in was uh, with plasma. For those carrying plasma and NPRVCs, who's administering which first? I'd be curious to know that as well. And then a question, Zach, about staging of the air, uh, the helicopter, and how to, how was that arranged? I think you guys have a pre kind of a prearranged agreement with Memorial Herman there that they're ready to go within minutes. I think this was a ten minute time from him getting into your ambulance to the helicopter arriving. How does that work at your agency? Yeah, so basically with them, we just put them, uh, we're going to a call based off the notes. We put them on standby. As soon as we get there, we launch them. Um, their closest helicopter is usually about a 10-minute flight, depending on on where we're at. So they were there from, from the time that we got him in the ambulance to in the helicopter, I think was exactly 12 minutes. And then it was about an eight-minute flight to the level one trauma center. And due to the other location, he would have been, you know, 45 minutes to the closest level yeah. two 
um, Dr. Rice or Dr. Antavia, do you have a question? We're talking about escalating the, the airway management, so going, you know, BLS, superglottic, et cetera. In this guy's case, or these multi-system trauma patients that we can't get a good pulse ox reading, whether that's due to perfusion, whether that's blood on their, whatever, we just can't get a good pulse ox. What is it that you're looking at to decide to go ahead and escalate to that, that next level of airway management? In general, if we're not ventilating them well, if they're not breathing spontaneously at a normal rate, we would you know, definitely, if you, in the absence of a pulse ox reading, that would be my threshold to, to give positive pressure ventilation. Certainly, um, I think a lot of times we kind of wait a little too long and someone that's sort of a little more agonal than, than we would like. Um, and then, you know, I would be fairly aggressive with oxygenation in general. So um, Dr. Spate had presented just a few weeks ago on this idea of uh, hyperoxia, right? So um, is there too much oxygen? So um, if you look at the EPIC data set, there doesn't seem to be any threshold to which we get a benefit from oxygenation. So uh, you don't really have to be afraid of giving too much oxygen to these folks. So certainly um, if they're not breathing well in the absence of a pulse ox, you know, I'd use their, their ventilation rate. And if they're intubated, certainly you have an end title to sort of target your ventilation. Mark, hey, please, let's go to your yeah. slide so we can get into the EPIC data a little bit here. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know what, well, because I see we're short on time, yep. I've, I've, I've cut them down a little bit. Uh, can yeah. someone make me a, uh, actually, you know what, here, never mind. I'm going to stop my share and you can share. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. And while you're getting them up, I'll just uh, mention, well, you go ahead and we'll, we'll give the outcome here at the end. Okay. Awesome. So if you haven't read this study, you know, please do. Obviously we're so grateful to have Dr. Rice uh, on the, on the call today to share her experiences. Um, I did find this article amazing, but I, there was some data that I had to kind of find in other presentations and the appendix and so forth that I really wanted to uh, show here and really get Dr. Rice's opinion. So we all, we all know this from the study that hypoxia gives you a five times worse outcome, hypotension three times worse, worse, both of them, you have a 17 times worse chance of an outcome. Now, here's some interesting information. I think I found this from the slide set that goes along with the link that Hillary put in there. If, 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 and this is the mortality versus the systolic blood pressure increase after the lowest blood pressure. So if the patient's hypotensive, like this guy, the mortality drops significantly if the blood pressure increases after the lowest blood pressure. So just get this guy blood pressure up. Large increases are associated with very large reductions in mortality. So the higher you get it, as opposed to the permissive hypotension, the better. So I think that's an important point, and I think Amber made that point very well. What if your patient starts with a normalish blood pressure? You know, no, let's call it normal, right? Ninety to one twenty. Then systolic blood pressure increases are associated with slight reductions, and even if you increase the blood pressure in a large way, it does not appear to be detrimental. Interesting. Now, what if you look at the cohort that already has a high blood pressure? Increasing their blood pressure is not good, but going up to 30 points higher doesn't appear to be detrimental. Now, the next couple of slides is really the, the interesting part for me, and I think Amber alluded to it already. Oh, I think here it is. Mortality versus the last EMS blood pressure. So we're bringing this patient in. What is the blood pressure that portends the best outcome for these patients? And the range was surprising to me. And uh, again, I don't think this was reported too much in the paper. That's why I want to hear Dr. Rice's input on this. Patients arriving with a BP of 125 to 170 have the lowest risk of dying. 
This goes against permissive hypotension. And I'll stop here and would love to hear, Amber, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so if we look across the spectrum, right? So the not only does the the depth of the blood pressure decrease matters. So the depth of the hypotension matters, but also the duration of the hypotension. So in the study that I presented at NAMSP, we looked at pre-hospital hypotension versus in-hospital hypotension or both. So not only are you more likely to arrive with a hypotensive patient, if you have a hypotensive patient, so your chance of arriving to the trauma center with hypotension is five times greater if you have pre-hospital hypotension. So Pre-hospital hypotension portends hospital hypotension. And if your blood pressure, if you don't fix their blood pressure by the time you get to the hospital, those patients have the worst outcome. So if, if they're okay and they drift down towards the time when they reach the trauma center, that's bad. If, if they start out hypotensive and they get better, that's better. And if they're never hypotensive at all, um, that's the best. But that, that duration of hypotension matters um, really just as much as the depth of hypotension. So we have to remember that even if they're just below 90, but we have them there for a 15, 20 minute transport. That's also pretty bad. Okay. And then I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in a couple more slides. I love that, that comment because in kids, it turns out it's the same exact thing. This is a study from the Pegasus trial. They looked at 236 severe TBI patients from five trauma centers, and they looked at timely treatment of hypoxia and hypotension. And there it is right here. So if you had early hypotension in the field, and you had treatment, treatment of early hypertension was within 30 minutes, you could see the difference in outcomes, 27.3% versus zero. The patients who had no early hypotension had, had better outcomes. And so the same exact things you found, Amber, in your data, the same thing goes true for children with respect to hypotension and hypoxia. The, the, the H-bombs are exactly the same. So um, again, I think that your, your data is incredible. And I think everyone listening, um, I, will, I will put my entire PowerPoint with Dr. Rice's study, the EPIC study is gonna be in there. You'll have the entire folder, take it, R&D it, rip off and duplicate um, and use it at your agencies as well. So Mark, back to you. Yeah, I was, yeah, this is incredible. Uh, thank you, Peter and Amber for being here. I think um, the lessons are the team here did an incredible job. Um, it teaches us the, the this case uh, and Amber's data teach us that prioritizing blood pressure should be something at the top of our minds, especially with TBI. And I know it's a challenge and I don't know that I have the right answer for when you prioritize in uh, advanced airway over resuscitation. Um, that still seems a, to be a big mystery question to me. Um, and it, obviously varies by patient, but this one, I think they did the right thing for sure. I do want to show um, the video that Zach gave me permission to show of the outcome here, the, the, um, the reunion of this patient and his care team. And it was the Cypress Creek paramedics, the folks from Memorial Hermann that flew him and a whole host of other folks, but he ended up uh, having multiple internal injuries, was hospitalized almost for a year um, on a ventilator for a long time, but walked out. And I thought I'd just wrap up the show here with the actual video of that, of the reunion with the Cypress Creek team and this patient.
Zach, were you showing him images from the scene? Were yeah, he didn't remember the actual uh, the, the call itself. He remembers waking up in the hospital, and so he he had asked to see some of uh, some of our footage, which we don't commonly do. Um, but this was obviously a unique a unique case. And basically, what I was saying there is that you know this is one of those ones that he should not have survived. I mean, it, his injuries were so severe. I remember when the helicopter took off. I said. I don't think he makes it to the hospital alive. And for him to walk in there, you know, a year later was just absolutely incredible. Yeah, I think uh, I can speak for all of us, Zach. This is a testament to you, your entire team, your department, your leadership uh, for, for kind of putting things in place that make, that, that make people come back to life and doing things that matter. So just congratulations on that. David, do you want to say something? I just want to say, to, you know, uh, it's also... Uh, sharing something in a in a sacred space and the ability to just share this video and allow us to learn from it is also something uh, that is so incredibly wonderful and another aspect of giving and Zach I just wanted to thank you for that as well. Thank yeah, you all Zach, uh, a couple people have asked a few other questions. How many paramedics were on scene? Um, talk a little bit just about your deployment and, and dispatch and who goes first. And then um, I assume uh, two people on the helicopter. Yeah, that's correct. So we, we had uh, myself and the other supervisor, a uh, paramedic, and then usually we'd have a paramedic EMT team. This one happened to be an advanced EMT. So uh, there was four of us in the back uh, until the, uh, the helicopter crew arrived. And Zach, another person asked about the shock dose induction agents that you talked about. Um, can you just share quickly your um, your uh, dosing for that? Those yeah, uh, yeah. Put it in the chat there. So usually we do kind of that 0.15 to 0.25 milligrams per kilo. So most people get you know 15 to 25 milligrams. It's obviously you know not not common. It's unique to the situation. Uh, but we found in some some cases that it's worked really really well. So where maybe the patient did need to be intubated, but we didn't want to do paralytic only. Um, their MAP was, you know, 60 to 65. So maybe they were perfusing. If they needed a little extra, uh, we will do that. And we've had good luck with it. Great. I'm going to put up the um, QR code for everyone to scan for the um, CE. But in the meantime, um, we still have a few minutes left. So other questions, statements, um, Amber, um, any closing thoughts? Um, yeah, Maya? Yeah, I'd love to hear any summary thoughts you guys have? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, kudos to the crew, Zach. I mean, you guys did a just wonderful job and obviously a, a well-run EMS system. And just, it, it's really easy to see where we would do different uh, sort of years later. But in the moment, I think with a patient that, that is that sick, um, really incredible job. Yeah, I, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I was also incredibly um, impressed and to talk about, you know, Amber and the Epic trial, I think the big thing that I took home from that was if you looked at the entire phase of the patient's care, right? Like these patients are in the hospital for a long time 
the impact that that first like 20, 25 minutes of pre-hospital care has on their outcome. You know, there's, there's so much care that comes after, but so much of the outcome is determined by that bundle of care that's provided early on. And to me, that was incredible. And I think that this example where we watched them take things and think about all those in the count. And I think also when your destination is a helicopter an advanced airway makes a lot of sense. Um, I I was just really impressed by that. And I think that that's sort of putting those like research principles into, into action. Yeah. It's such a good point, Maya. I think we sometimes forget how few patients actually are treated with neurosurgery. So of all the patients that have a, a brain injury, um, very, very few end up having a, a neurosurgical intervention that, that provides them any benefit, but the pre-hospital care uh, pro- really does provide a benefit to all those patients. So it's such a big bang for the buck and uh, definitely keep doing what you guys are doing. And then I'll, I'll, I, I so agree with Maya, Amber, thank you guys for, for coming on today. I, I would hope that everyone does a few things. Um, when, you, when, you're, when you're meeting quarterly or however often you're doing your training, take the PowerPoint slides that, that I put up there and I put a couple of simple cases in there. And you'll see that everybody will get the cases wrong because you'll give them a case of exactly this guy. And you know um, people will jump to certain things and that's the opportunity to say, you can manage the airway in a basic fashion, prioritize getting the brain perfused, Make sure you do the, 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 the simple things because like Amber just said, most people don't need a neurosurgeon. They need great pre-hospital care. It's, and that's why I love pre-hospital care because what we do in the field matters and it matters perhaps more for the patient than what happens when they get to the hospital. And again, I don't wanna minimize what the hospital does, but if we don't do it right before they get to the hospital, they're not gonna live. And you know, to, to Zach and his team's testament, they did the right thing to make the patient come back and the patient's alive and walking and talking today. So um, amazing stuff. I would lo- love to hear, Hillary, you wanna, you wanna take it away? Maybe uh, open the mic for some folks to- hey, Peter, I'm gonna just yeah. quickly read this guy's admitting diagnoses just to get a, a feel for the magnitude of the injuries and then we'll take a few more questions. So they were subarachnoid hemorrhage, subdural hematoma, cerebral edema, uh, acute blood loss, splenic fracture, pelvic fracture, diaphragm injury, liver laceration, hemoneumothorax, bilateral, hemoperitoneum, retroperitoneal hematoma, bilateral pulmonary contusions, rib fractures, and sacral fracture. And despite all that, he walked in to uh, see you guys again. So pretty amazing. So he must have been run over. I mean, for that to happen, he must have been run over. I do want to. I do want to mention the affective domain here. I want to get into the emotions, Zach. Uh, not all agencies do these patient, um, you know, reunifications with crews. Um, talk about what what that looks like in, at Cypress Creek and why it's so valuable. Because um, it's been shown to be one of the best ways to prevent burnout. Um, it helps with EMS providers understanding what happened to their patient and getting patient follow-up. Just like to hear what that's like for you as a provider. I know, I know Dr. Antevi's done a ton of, of work and research on this, uh, especially with, with pediatrics, uh, which is, is phenomenal. But for us, it's just important to our providers to see that, that what they do matters, um, why we train the way that we do, the things that, that we, you know, 
for us, we don't get to see the outcome very often. We don't get to see what happens to the patient. Um, and so these ones where we're able to stay in touch with either family or coworkers, this one actually came about because the, uh, a, a mutual friend was working in the, the ICU and just happened to contact us and say, hey, that, that guy, like, he, he got discharged to rehab. We didn't know the last, the last, I have the email still saved. The last uh, contact we had is that uh, the prognosis was not good. And it looked like they were going to start talking about organ donation and, and going down that path. And that's, that's what, that's what we would have known had, had we not been reached out to. So to make it happen, the family was incredibly uh, just supportive and thankful for our efforts. And it, it was very, very uplifting for our crews. You know, um, the fact that it came about um, uh, just accidentally um, shows that, you know, we're not all the way there um, and agencies need to have someone helping with those reunifications. Peter, what what do you guys Hi, do? Can I, can I interject real quick? Hi, I'm Liz Lacey. I am um, I'm actually the EMS outreach coordinator at University Medical Center in New Orleans. And I'm very fortunate because um, our system implemented my my position about a year and a half ago and you're very very right about like the feedback um these crews thrive on it so we've um been fortunate enough to be able to create a feedback program so any ems provider that brings in any kind of patient they fill out a little card and part of what i do is i um give them a full rundown of what that patient's hospital course was like. And it has been so positive and so beneficial, not only from um, a, a learning standpoint, but a morale standpoint. Um, everybody seems to love it. And I highly recommend that, um, you know, more hospitals um, team up with their, with their EMS agencies to try to get some type of program in place like that. Great. Thank you, Elizabeth, for chiming in. Can you, um, if you feel comfortable, share your contact information for all of the folks on the call who are going to ask you how to do this in their agency? Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Uh, Hillary, I think, I think that we ought to close with just a big thank you to uh, yes. Zach, your team, Cypress Creek, uh, EMS, but also um, Mark for, you spent a lot of time trying to track all this stuff down, putting it together. I know how adamant you are about getting the right care for patients. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that people can take this video and learn from it. And we can start to translate what people like Dr. Rice and her team have shown us into our patients today in the field. So and I'll just add, we will continue to have these podcasts. It's an amazing opportunity for us to all learn. And uh, this is an awesome forum and we want to continue it. So keep continue to spread the word for everyone that's on here. And I just want to thank Prodigy, Peter and Mark for, I just continue to be honored to be a part of this uh, journey that we're all on. And by the way, if there's any 20 year old paramedics who are, who are air medics, I didn't mean any negative negativity. <laughs> <laughs> I just meant, I just meant that we, we are experienced enough to do it ourselves. So Take that away. Thank you, David, for making that obvious to me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. See you in about a month uh, for our next case. Uh, follow us on Twitter. And uh, Dr. Rice, thank you for being here today. Yes, thank, you. thank you, Dr. Rice. Thank you so much. Bye.